Okay, you guys may be seated. Um, I'm really excited to get into the Magnificat. Uh, something that we do as a church, something that uh, Exit Church does, which is the church that uh, sent us out here, uh, is every summer we will do a series through the Psalms. And I love preaching the Psalms, I love studying the Psalms, I love reading the Psalms. And so one of the reasons I'm really going to enjoy tonight's text is because the Magnificat reads very much like a psalm. It has all of those essential elements. It's very theocentric, which means it has God at the center. And it has a lot of uh, elements of Hebrew poetry, which is uh, statements and restatements of truths. And so for all those reasons, I'm really excited for the text tonight. It's a break from the narrative structure that we've been looking at thus far in the text. Something that uh, is true of all humans is that we were created first and foremost and primarily to glorify God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism answers the question this way, which is, what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the answer that the Westminster Shorter Catechism has to say. The chief end of man is to enjoy God forever and to bring glory to him. And those two elements are linked together. Joy in God and glory and bringing glory to God are linked together. And the link between those two is worship. If you have joy in God, your joy in God will flow over into your worship of God. And in worshiping the Lord, you bring glory to God. It could be said another way, which is that if you do not enjoy God, if you find no joy in the Lord, you cannot worship him rightly, and therefore you cannot bring glory to him through your worship. If you enjoy God, you will worship him and you will bring glory to him. And in thus, you will fulfill your chief end, which is to bring glory to God and to enjoy him forever. Those two things are linked ideas. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 says it this way. Paul says to rejoice in the Lord always. He says at the end of his uh, contemplative letter about suffering and pain and finding hope in all of those seasons, he says that he concludes that you should, in his exhortation to the church, rejoice in the Lord always. And the question then is, how can you always rejoice in the Lord? Because circumstances change. Friendships come and go. Relationships come and go. Jobs come and go. Success and failure comes and goes. Uh, happiness and depression, those seasons come and they go. How can you always rejoice in the Lord? Your joy in the Lord cannot be linked to circumstance. If your joy is linked to your circumstance, then your joy is dependent on whatever your circumstances might be. So if you have to rejoice in the Lord always, then it would lead you to assume that your joy cannot be found in whatever your circumstances are, whether that be a job, a career, a relationship. As good as those things might be, they are not permanent. They are temporal. They will change eventually. It might be for a long time, it might be for a short time, but eventually those circumstances will change. How then as Christians can we find joy in God? Because remember that the aim of this is to find joy in God so that we can rightly worship God. How can we find joy in God always? The answer lies really in God's sovereignty. If God is sovereign and we can understand his sovereignty and we can see his sovereignty rightly, then we will be able to rejoice rightly in God. If we acknowledge him to be the ruler over all things, then it really doesn't matter what circumstances life throws our way. The way Paul says it in Philippians chapter 4 and verses 11 and 12, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and in every circumstance, I have learned the secret 
of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. That secret is found earlier in the letter when he says in Philippians chapter, chapter 1, verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but you should suffer for his sake. The secret in finding joy in God is recognizing that not only should you have faith in the Lord, but suffering because of God's sovereignty is an element in which we can experience God's joy. The secret is knowing that suffering is a way to bring God joy. It's a circumstance which he brings into our lives so that we might better glorify him because we might better enjoy him and therefore we might better worship him. Suffering is a gift only if God is sovereign. If God is not sovereign, then suffering is not a gift. Think, for example, at the end of Genesis, we encounter Joseph, who knows what it is to suffer, and who at the end of his time of being imprisoned, falsely accused, sold into slavery by his brothers, and serving under the hands of people who hate Jewish people, he served with the Egyptians, he rises in status and in power, and at the conclusion of that, he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good speaking to his brothers, acknowledging that in all of his suffering, God was sovereign. Not only in that God took the suffering and tried to make adjustments on the fly to make it work out for better, but that God intended for Joseph to be sold into slavery, and that God intended for Joseph to be imprisoned wrongly, and that God intended for Joseph to ultimately be raised to the right hand of Pharaoh himself. Suffering is a gift from God only if God is sovereign. And how that all relates to our passage tonight in the Magnificat is that ultimately we can find joy in God and then we can rightly worship God and then we can rightly glorify God. And Mary is the one who's going to show us this exact same pattern. Because remember, Mary is not in a season right now where she knows what's coming next. Mary is a 13-year-old girl in a Jewish society where she is now pregnant outside of wedlock. With little explanation, and she doesn't even know right now if Joseph is going to be on board for the pregnancy. In fact, Mary would be a chief candidate today for an abortion because she has no security. She's single. She has no job. She's got no source of income. This baby is unwanted and really inconvenient. And yet Mary takes this opportunity and the encouragement she receives from Elizabeth and the faithfulness of God to her and writes a song of praise and worship. Matter of fact, she writes a, a psalm in the same way that her forefather David would have written psalms in similar circumstances. She recognized that suffering and uncertainty and trials and questions about what comes next, those are all mechanisms by which God uses to bring himself the most glory because our joy is not linked to our circumstance. Our joy is linked to God's sovereignty. If God is sovereign, as Mary recognizes here, then you can rejoice in God whenever and in whatever situation you find yourself which is good news for us, and Mary is going to model this for us tonight. She's going to show us how to rightly worship God. Something to note real quick before we get into the text is that Mary is, as I mentioned earlier, she's 13 years old, as most scholars would assume, by the time that she writes this psalm. And in this psalm, she quotes a bunch of Old Testament scripture. As a matter of fact, if you go through this psalm, it's almost like she's copying and pasting out of the Old Testament which is interesting because she wouldn't have had a physical copy of the Old Testament. She knew her Bible from the synagogue, going faithfully week after week, as most Jews would have done in that time. 
but she had not only known it for that one day of the week, but she was probably meditating over these words day after day after day. And she had this stuff so ingrained in her that when the moment came where she needed truth, she had truth to grasp onto. If you consume nothing but God's word, when you face suffering, nothing but God's word is going to come out of you. Another way you could say that is a negative sense. If you consume nothing but nonsense, nothing but nonsense will come out of you. It doesn't matter if it's a good circumstance or a bad circumstance. So as Christians, if we know that we are guaranteed to suffer for the sake of Christ, and we know that the only way to endure suffering is to know about God's sovereignty, and the only way to know about God's sovereignty is to find it in his word, then we need to feast on God's word so that we can find joy in who God is. If you don't feast on God's word, you will have no truth to grasp onto when you most need it. God is sovereign. It's all over scripture. The world is convinced that God isn't sovereign. That's all over what it's feeding us. And so you get to choose what meal you're going to eat as a believer. Are you going to regularly diet on the food of this world? By that I mean TV, social media, the news. Or are you going to feast and feed on the word of God because it is the right source of nutrition that you need? It is going to get you that right view of God, that right view of him, which ultimately, and remember the aim of this, is to give us the right view of God so that we can have joy in him, so that we can worship him, so that we can glorify him. That's the train. God is the source of our joy, not our circumstance. And Mary is the chief example of what this looks like. So we're going to note three things today in the text. So Mary writes this psalm of praise. We're going to note three things about it. First of all, we're going to note the style of worship. We're going to note the style of worship. Remember, if she has joy in God, that's going to inform her worship of God. And so we're going to look at the style of that worship. How does she go about doing it? Secondly, we're going to take a look at the nature of worship. What is the essence of worship? What's it all about? The nature of worship. And then lastly, we are going to look at the content of worship. What is it about? What is it actually saying? What is it conveying about who God is. So first, let's look at the style of her worship. It it would be easy for me to draw this conclusion, which is that some worship can bring glory to God and some worship cannot. Some worship actually elevates God and brings him glory and some worship is false and God doesn't recognize it as glorifying him. In Leviticus chapter 1, all the way through chapter 7, You have the outline of Israel's sin offerings, their guilt offerings, their grain offerings, their burnt offerings, and their peace offerings. And all of these get lost in translation often for us because we're concerned about how many animals are getting killed and what kind of animal dies and exactly how do they go about killing it. But if you look back at the big picture, what these first seven chapters of Leviticus tell us is a model of how you engage with a holy God as a sinful person when you want to encounter him. So we can break these apart. First off is the grouping of the guilt and the sin offering as outlined in Leviticus chapter 1 through chapter 7. The guilt and the sin offering are all about sinful people getting themselves right before a holy God, making atonement for the sins they've already committed. If you want to engage God rightly, you need to first start with a confession of sin. You need to first acknowledge that you yourself are not clean, You need to provide an atonement for your sins, for the guilt that you have on you. And then, maybe then, 
you can engage with God. The second element to that worship pattern that they have in Leviticus is the grain and the burnt offerings. These are offerings of praise to the Lord. The burnt offering is the most expensive of all the offerings because it's totally consumed. Everything that's brought is consumed in a fire only for God, save for the skins which the priests would be able to use. The grain and the burnt offerings are offerings of praise to the Lord. So after you have your confession of sin and you acknowledge that you were not right before the Lord and you make atonement for sin, what the Israelites would then do through the priests is they would bring about the abundance of their harvest to the Lord as a praise offering to him, saying, Lord, you are worthy of this. I will bring you praise. I will bring you worship through my grain offering, through my burnt offering. And then lastly, in the pattern of Leviticus, you have what's called the peace offering which would usually be offered up to the Lord and then had as a feast with all the people there, which was to commemorate the fact that not only did the atonement actually mean something, but the peace was to represent the lasting impact of that offering. That not only have you atoned for your previous sins, but there is peace going forward with God so long as you obey the covenant. And so it was no surprise in Leviticus that these offerings were repeated over and over and over again because the people were not perfect by any means. But yet they give us this model of worship, which is that you need a confession of sin, an element of praise, and then an element of long-lasting covenant peace before God. And then right after that, in Leviticus chapter 10, we get a negative example. If you guys will turn with me to Leviticus chapter 10, I would like to take a look at that negative example. So all the offerings have been outlined. They've been told and given instructions exactly how they're to do offerings. All the instructions with how they're to handle the offerings. And then in chapter 9, Aaron goes and he gives an offering and it's acceptable before the Lord. He follows all of the instructions. But then in chapter 10, we get a negative example. What happens when worship is not glorifying to God? Here you have the example of Nadab and Abihu. In chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Nadab and Abihu give give the Lord an offering, that he did not tell them to give him. Meaning, the previous seven chapters of instruction, they said, we're glad, God, for that suggestion that you gave us. We're going to go out on our own limb and worship you on our own terms. And they do that, and they're consumed by God. Meaning, his fire goes forth, and rather than consuming the offering that they gave, he consumes them as well. They're not there anymore. Naab and Abihu are gone. It says unauthorized fire, which means a fire that is not acceptable, not worshipful before the Lord. And so as a pattern of our worship, we can draw from this that there is an acceptable kind of worship to God and there is an unacceptable kind of worship to God. Worship must be on God's terms. God is the one who gets to decide how we worship him, when we worship him, how we're to engage with him, how we're to bring him praise. He's got all that covered. He gave them seven chapters of instruction. Mary follows that pattern of worship that God gave the Israelites back in these seven chapters in Leviticus. So if you'll turn back to the Magnificat, I want to point those out. 
So remember, one of the elements of correct worship before the Lord is repentance. The guilt and the sin offering are about repentance. They're about acknowledging that you are wrong before the Lord and you need to be made right before you can actually approach God. And she says, in the very first verse of her Magnificat, in verse 47, she says, And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She acknowledges that she needs a Savior just like everybody else does. This is a confession of sin. Mary says that I need a Savior just like everybody else, and God is first and foremost my Savior. She has now had that element of repentance. She acknowledges that she's a sinner in need of a Savior, identifying the Lord as her personal Savior. She has the element of the praise offering as well. If you read really the whole Magnificat, you get that she says, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And then she names all of these reasons why she's going to worship God. She says because he has a mighty arm, because he brings down the proud, because he gives grace to the humble, because he feeds the hungry, because he sends the rich away empty. She worships God and praises him for all of these things. And then she closes her prayer with an example of what the peace offering would have been like. And she, in verse 55, makes note of the fact that she says that he has spo- as he has spoken to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She's going to re- make reference to the Abrahamic covenant, which is what the peace offering would have been like, which is that the people are right before God. They have an ongoing peace with him on the basis of the offering they just made. And Mary says that she is right before God and the people are right for, before God on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant, which has been made in the past. So here you have all the elements of praise. Repentance, the worship before the Lord, and then the peace offering as well, the remembrance of the covenant. And she ends on this covenant example. In fact, if you were to think about it, all worship services, if you've really thought carefully about how you worship God, should model this pattern. There should be an element of repentance and confession. And here at Ruah Church, we begin every worship service by acknowledging that there is a God in heaven. Here's a truth about this God. Let's reflect on that truth, which gives ourselves time to acknowledge that our hearts need to be checked before that God. We need to repent of whatever sins we have, and we need to confess those sins so we can come before the Lord and engage in worship rightly. That's the very first thing that we do here. The second element is a praise element, which is that we bring the word of God, we read his word out loud, I explain it to you, which brings glory to God because I'm bringing his word to his people, and then we get a chance to sing praise in response to the Lord God. So we have this element of praise component, which is both in the musical worship and in the preaching of God's word. And then lastly, we have the communion component, which is the remembrance of the covenant of lasting peace that we have before God, just as the peace offering in Leviticus was a continual ongoing peace, a confirmation of the agreement before God and his people, so also the communion, the eating of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ is the remembrance of the ongoing peace that we have before God. Hebrews chapter 10, 22 gives us the outline for worship when it says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean of an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. We need to be sprinkled clean. We need to be washed with water. And we can then draw near in a full assurance of our faith to bring God his rightful worship. Her model of worship that she outlines for us in the Magnificat is one that we can all follow. 
And I'm not just talking about public worship, although it is 100% a way to inform our public worship. But Mary, for her, this is private worship. This is one-on-one time with God, which means that in your own private time with the Lord, in your devotionals in the morning when you engage with God in prayer, how you engage with God should model this same type of pattern. You should first start with a confession of sins. Don't be arrogant enough to think that as long as you haven't committed a major sin between yesterday and today, you're good to go and you can just start right off asking God for things. When you engage with the Lord, you need to check yourself first to remember and to remind yourself of the fact that when Nadab and Abihu encountered God on their own terms, they were consumed. And because of the grace of Jesus Christ and his blood-bought gift that you and I are not, but that doesn't mean that we step out and violate our practice of worship. God told us how to worship him. And so we, in our private time, also worship God in that way. We should have our repentance time. We should have time to praise the Lord for who he is and all that he's done. And then at some point in time, we should remind ourselves of the fact that we have peace before God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of those pieces are elements to both our public and our private worship. And if you do devotionals with your family or you do devotionals with other people and you do a small group setting, it should follow the same pattern because this is how you are to bring praise and glory to God. How does your worship compare? Think back to how you encountered God in the last three days, in the last week. When you open up your Bible, what's the first thing that you do? When you open up your mouth to pray to the Lord, what's the first thing that you say? Do you ask first? Do you confess? How does your worship of the Lord compare to this? Remember that a right view of God, a right understanding of joy of the Lord, informs how we worship God. If you see God as sovereign, and that informs your joy and the fact that you can rejoice in him, you have to remind yourself that you can rejoice in a good and holy God, and that should remind you of the fact that you are not a good and holy person, so you need to confess your sin. And then you can bring praise to this sovereign God who's good and he reigns over all things. And then you can remind yourself of the fact that he's already taken care of the peace component. All of those are elements to right worship of God. I want to encourage all of you to resolve to be well thought out in how you encounter God. Resolve to be thought out and not careless in how you encounter God in your time. Be diligent about setting aside time to encounter the Lord. Be diligent not only about setting aside a block of time, but also being consistent with that. And on top of that, within that space and time that you've decided you're going to go and read your Bible or encounter the Lord, resolve how you're going to structure that time. There is nothing that is holy about being spontaneous and off the cuff with how you encounter God. When you pray, there's nothing holy about repeating yourself over and over again and making sure that you don't think too hard about it because that would be legalistic. There's nothing holy about that. In fact, there's nothing holy about being spontaneous. There's nothing wrong with writing things down ahead of time, resolving that this is the pattern of worship that you're going to follow, resolving to confess your sins first and foremost as a pattern, resolving to read God's word and pray over it, those are, those are things that you should be well thought out about. That will greatly amplify your time with the Lord. To be well thought out about how you're going to encounter God, because again, he's given us the model of how we're to encounter him. And he knows what's best for us. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones would say it this way, that when he was a, he was a physician, he would never let the patient write the prescription. 
And so we are all in need of God being our doctor and being our great physician. And so, but we're not allowed to write the prescription. We don't get to decide how we are to best worship this God. He's already given us the prescription for how we're to find joy in him. And that's through right worship of him, which leads to glorifying him, which is ultimately what we were created to do. And if you do the right worship of God, you will find joy in that because ultimately that's what you are designed for. And God, the designer of you, has also designed how you are to worship. And that informs how we engage with it. And if you need to be reminded of that structure, you can just take the Magnificat this week and reflect on it. The exact structure of how to engage with worship. Don't be too complicated about it. It's already in scripture. Let's look at the nature of worship. So we've looked now at the style of worship, which is what pattern do we follow when we encounter God. Now let's look at the nature of worship, which is what is the exact element or the essence of how we worship God. The first thing that I want to note is that worship is theocentric, which is that worship is focused and fixated and only caring about God. It is theocentric. That means God in the center. That's not you in the center. That's not me in the center. That's not our wants, needs, and desires at the center. That's not how pious we are towards the Lord and acknowledging that and saying, Lord, we need you, we love you, we long for you. That can be a component of worship, but God is at the center of worship. We worship God for who he is and for what he does. And if you don't know what he does, you need to read his word because it'll tell you all about what he's done and what he's continuing to do. In this passage in the Magnificat, there are six unique moments where Mary says the phrase, he has, followed by something that God has done. Six different times. She doesn't ask for one thing from God. She's pregnant, out of wedlock. She could ask for a thousand things like, can you, can you go before me and work on Joseph's heart so when I go talk to him, things will be okay? Or can you make sure that I don't die when I go tell my husband that I'm pregnant and it's not his child? She could have asked for so many things, material provision, but instead she skips all of that and goes straight to acknowledging and praising God. He has, he has, he's been faithful to his people, and that is enough of a reminder for her to know that he will continue to be faithful to her. It's not our own desire for God that we acknowledge and worship, but just God, just who he is. Think about the worship song, Awesome God. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that one, but it goes like this. It says, our God is an awesome God, and he reigns. He reigns from heaven above. He reigns with wisdom, power, and love. And then it concludes, our God is an awesome God. That's God, through and through. That's a right way to worship the Lord. He's awesome. He's awesome for all these reasons. He reigns. He's awesome. It's a good way to worship God. If you want a good way to worship God, go buy an old hymnal, one where the words are patterned out and syllabled out. That's a good way to encounter God in worship. Read the Psalms. That's a good way to encounter God in worship. The very essence of worship is that it's all about God from start to finish. How is her worship so fixated on God? How is she able to, in her current circumstance, lock in on God and praise him for all that he is? The way that she's able to do that is the fact that she is saturated in scripture. Even in her worship, what's coming out of her mouth is scripture from start to finish. 
in the first three verses, that's all I'm going to take time to do right now, just look at the first three verses. She says it this way. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's Psalm 34, verse 2. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, which brings back echoes of David's psalm of praise, which he says in 2 Samuel 22, verse 3. It also reminds us of Hosea, which we finished studying a little while ago. Hosea chapter 13, verse 4, where he says, I am the Lord your God, and besides me there is no Savior. She says she rejoices in God my Savior, acknowledging the same God of the Israelites of old. In verse 48, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant, which brings uh, memories of Hannah's prayer. Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, who's also barren, who prays for children, And who, when she receives the prayer of the Lord, she says that he has looked upon the humble estate of her servant. And she rejoices in that fact. Verse 49, for he who, uh, sorry, uh, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. That's out of Genesis chapter 30, verse 13. When Leah, one of the wives of Jacob, has a child and she says that now behold, because I've had all these children, all generations, all women will look on me and call me blessed. And then in uh, verse 49, he says, He who is mighty has done great things for me. That's right out of the Psalms. You can pick your Psalm. It's all over the place. I looked at Psalm 71, 19. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. It's all over Scripture. It's Scripture through and through. I could go the rest of the Magnificat and you could find cross-reference after cross-reference after cross-reference. If you have a study Bible, you'll see this. If you don't, you can just go on BibleHub.com and you can Google all the cross-references that happen here. They are all over the place. She is quoting scripture after scripture after scripture from her heart. Because remember, she doesn't have a written copy. She's just quoting from her memory, from what she knows about God. And that informs her worship of God. That's how she's able to stay locked in on God and theocentric in a time of need. She's just praying the Bible back to God. That's all she's doing. She's worshiping God with the words he's already given her to say in her hour of need. And in his sovereignty, he's already orchestrated all these words to be internalized and read aloud to her, that she's been able to memorize them since she was a child, and that 13 years old, when she writes her first poem that's recorded here in the Gospel of Luke, here we have a psalm of praise. I don't know about you, but I wasn't quoting scripture when I was this old. And it's a real heart check, I think, for most of us, because it's amazing how many things kids can learn. And it's amazing how many things you and I can pick up just passively over time without even really focusing much on it. What are the things that you know a lot about that aren't that valuable? I can think of a lot of things that I know a lot about that aren't that valuable. I can think of song lyrics that I know because I listened to them all throughout high school and all throughout college, and they're useless. Matter of fact, they're actually, most of them, pretty bad. But that's in my head, regardless of the fact that I have tried to forget it or I've stopped listening for a while. Those things are still in my head. I've internalized them over time. So my encouragement to you would be to feast both actively and passively on Scripture. Because you will find that you remember things you never knew were in there. And the Holy Spirit will use the fact that you passively absorb His Word and bring it to light right when you need it. And bring it to memory right when you most need that encouragement. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus encourages his people this way. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Mary's mouth speaks out of the abundance of her heart, which was already inside. Scripture was already in her heart. It was all over the place. What would come out of your mouth if out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks? What's in your heart that if enough of it, if enough pressure, enough stress comes in there, 
what comes out of you. Out of my heart, a lot of times comes evil things, evil thoughts, because I have an evil heart. And so I need to constantly die to self and live to Christ and replace the old with the new. And so my encouragement to you would be to do that now, so that when those tough times come, you have absorbed through the power of the Spirit all this knowledge, all this truth of God, so that it can come out when you most require it. The nature of worship is not only that it's theocentric, which is that it's focused on God, but also that there is both an internal and an external component to worship. If you look at the text here, it says that, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She's acknowledging that there's an internal component to her worship. Worship always starts on the inside. It doesn't stop there, but it has to start there. It has to start there. Worship that is honoring to God starts with the emotion, the mind, and the will all aligned to acknowledging God for all that he is. And if you're not careful, your worship can skip the internal, go straight to the external, and then you realize you've been singing words to songs, and you're not getting anything out of it. And you're not absorbing any of that. You're not really engaged with that, but you're able to model along with what everyone else is doing. Worship needs to have an internal component. But also, worship must have an external component. It's not enough to just know about God and know truths about him and believe truths about him, but you need to tell truths about him. There needs to be an external component to worship as well. She says that her soul magnifies the Lord. That's where we get the name from, by the way, the Magnificat. Because in the Latin Vulgate, that's the first word of her song of praise. She magnifies the Lord. She praises the Lord. She worships the Lord. She exalts the Lord. She fixates on the Lord. She enlarges or brings up the name of the Lord. She magnifies the Lord. That is an external component. It's an internal reality first, but it is certainly external. No one around her who would have read this when it was written or would have heard her say these words, no one, no one would have been confused about who she was talking about and the things she was saying about him. There is an external reality to worship, which is that people need to know you are sincere in what you're saying. Worship is the pinnacle. It's the highest thing in the human experience. It is the chief end of man. It's the greatest thing you can experience. All people were created to worship something. If you do it rightly, you're worshiping God. But that doesn't mean God is the only thing that you can worship. Everyone makes something great. So think about what you worship, whether it be through your time, through your words, through your thoughts, through your efforts, through your energy. Who are you bringing glory to? What are you worshiping as you worship? Everyone worships something. Everyone. And the last part of the nature of worship, the very essence of what it is, is that worship is constant. Worship is constant. She says that she rejoices in God her Savior. Now and going forward. One translator rendered it this way. She said, my soul has begun to rejoice in God my Savior. Meaning it's going to continue to rejoice. She's saying this is the tip of the iceberg of the joy, and it's going to go on for a long time. Worship is constant. Psalm 145 verse 2 says it this way. It says, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. The psalmist acknowledged that you need to worship God constantly. Worship is constant. And one of the final things that I want to look at here is the uh, nature of worship has an essence of humility. 
there needs to be a component of humility for you to worship God rightly. Humility is essential to the very heart of worship. Mary says and identifies herself as the servant of God. In verse 48, she says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Paul would later in his letters use this exact same designation when referring to himself. He says, For I am a slave of the Lord, a servant of God. I am the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, a slave to the gospel. Paul uses the designation that Mary first identifies here in the Magnificat. She says that I am the servant of God. Some translations might say I am the handmaiden or the bond slave of the Lord. She is acknowledging a status of humility, which is that she serves someone higher than herself. Humility can be uh, a component that is a, is a real pride killer. Pride completely destroys worship. If you have pride, you cannot worship. If you struggle with pride, that's the first thing you need to address when you're engaging in worship. Pride is a silent killer of worship. It destroys worship without you even being aware of the fact that it's destroying it. Because you can be saying songs of praise to the Lord God while acknowledging in the pride of your heart that God is lucky to have you and he should be proud of the fact that he got you. And look at how eloquent you are with your words and look at how righteous you live in your life. That's an element of pride which completely destroys worship. Which means that if you don't want to have pride in your worship, if you don't want to have that kill your worship, you need to engage in humility and consider yourself to be a slave before God, to be poor and impoverished before God. Pride completely kills worship. But another thing that can hinder worship, doesn't kill it the same way pride does, but can hinder worship, is ignorance. Ignorance will hurt your worship as well. Because although you might be worshiping God sincerely, you will be worshiping God shallowly. You won't have any depth to your worship in what you're saying. This is true if you've never endured suffering before. Because all of the promises of endurance and the promises of hope are all just promises. They're not realities that you can grab onto. Which is why it is the gift of God that we suffer because it allows us to more greatly worship him. If we suffer, we can worship better. Because all of the things in the scriptures are not just words on a page, but they are actual realities that we needed to hold onto in order to get through that season of life. You can't worship him well, though, if you don't know him well. Worship does not stop at knowledge. It has to go beyond knowledge. But it cannot go anywhere without knowledge. You can't worship what you don't know. So you need to know God if you want to worship him. You need to know God well if you want to worship him deeply. And you need to suffer well if you want to worship him passionately. To be humble is ultimately to admit your sin before God as a reality, not as a concept. A lot of times in, church, in Christian circles, we talk about sin as a vague, ethereal concept, which is that we all struggle with sin, but we're not okay to confess by name the specific sins that we struggle with or how they exactly impact our lives or how they impact our ability to encounter God. To be humble is to admit sin as a reality before the Lord not as a theological idea, but as something you actually struggle with. Not people struggle with, not mankind struggles with, something that you struggle with. If you acknowledge that, that's a step in the right direction to worshiping God. When sin is confessed, it does not hinder your worship, it enhances it. 
It doesn't hurt your worship at all. It enhances your worship of God. If sin goes unconfessed, it is a silent killer of worship. Think about uh, one of the chief uh, problems in American health today, which is hypertension. It is known as the silent killer because it can lead to all kinds of diseases, and it's almost undetectable unless you're looking for it. You can have perfectly healthy people suffering from hypertension. And the only way to know is to strap on a blood pressure cuff and to actually measure that blood pressure. That's the only way to know. But it has all kinds of systemic effects because the blood system spreads all throughout your body. It can affect your organs, your brain, your heart. And it's a silent killer because it does take away and rob your health over the long haul. And it can go undetected. So is unconfessed sin in worship. It can completely rob your ability to worship God undetected unless you slap on that blood pressure cuff and you address it and you acknowledge it and then you go after it which is how you confess sin. You deal with it by confessing it. And if you confess it rightly, it enhances your worship of God. Because the thing that we worship God for, first and foremost, is that God is our Savior, which means that we acknowledge that we are sinners and we need that Savior. So that is the uh, style of worship and the nature of worship. And now let's lastly look at the content of worship, which is really the body of this text the content of our worship. If it's true that the nature of worship is to focus on God, then the content of our worship has to reflect that God focus. It has to reflect it. And if you were to look here, I already made mention of this, but she says he has and acknowledges something God has done six different times in this text. She doesn't get away from God. The first things that she says, she says in verse 49 here, she says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary has a high view of God's sovereignty. She doesn't consider God to be a God among other options, and you shouldn't either. God is not one of many options. He's not one of many things to be worshipped. He is God above all gods. He is mighty. He is holy. He is set apart. He is completely different than anything else that you could worship. He's the only thing worthy of your worship. And he's the only thing that will satisfy you in your worship. He who is mighty, that is Yahweh, he's the only one who is mighty. He's the only one who gets that special place. Holy is his name. His name is to be revered, to be set apart, not to be polluted with idols. Paul would later say that if you're a Christian, you can't bond yourself to an unbeliever because God cannot be bonded to sin. And so a Christian cannot be bonded to an unbeliever. And so the church should purify herself and remain pure before God because he is holy and his people ought to be as well. Mary has a high view of God's sovereignty. If she didn't, she would not be able to have joy in this moment. God's sovereignty, as I mentioned earlier, is the source of Christian joy. If you have no concept of God's sovereignty, you will have no concept of lasting joy in Christ. His sovereignty is the only thing that Christians can cling on to when everything else is going wrong. When job is failing you, when career is failing you, when health is failing you, when relationships are failing you, God's sovereignty is the only thing that you can cling on to. And it's the only thing worth hanging on to. God does not share his power. He doesn't share his worship. He doesn't share center stage with anything else. God is at the center of worship. And at the content of this psalm, Mary has to address first and foremost that he is mighty, holy is his name. He's set apart. 
All scripture testifies to this truth. This is not Mary isolated. This is not the Old Testament and certain parts of it that amplify God as ruler and reigner and king over all creation. This goes all the way through the end of the epistles, even to Revelation where Jesus says he is coming back and those who are with him will be greatly rewarded and those who are not will not be. There is no neutrality with God. He's either worshipped or he's not. He's either at the center or he isn't. And I think we can all reflect on our own lives and ask that question, is God at the center? Is he in the middle? Do we have a high view of God and do we worship him according to that view? John chapter 6, verse 53 says it this way. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. This is how we acknowledge God to be at the center. We have to acknowledge our sin, eat his flesh, and drink his blood to acknowledge who we are before the King. He says here in the text, it's he, has, he has shown great strength his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Mary, having a high view of God and his sovereignty, looks at God and she acknowledges all of the faithfulness that he has given to Israel. She says that he has shown strength with his arm. And then she has probably one of two things in mind here. She can have the interpretation And some people would argue this, that this is talking about a future might that God is going to display. That he is going to, at the end of the age in Revelation, show the strength of his arm and scatter the proud and show grace to the humble. It could also have an element of Mary simply reflecting on Israel's history. She could just be looking at the pattern of Israel past and she could say that he has shown great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. That could refer to Pharaoh who stood against God and had his kingdom stripped away from him and his army decimated. That could be referring to Nebuchadnezzar, who looked over his whole kingdom and said, Behold, I have conquered all these things. And that could be a testament of the fact that God later grabs Nebuchadnezzar and makes him like an animal, eating grass and dribbling drool down his beard for a season, until Nebuchadnezzar will acknowledge that it is really God who's over every kingdom. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. God reigns over all empires that have ever ruled over the earth. Babylon rose and then fell. Greece rose and then fell. The Roman Empire rose and then fell. The British Empire rose and then fell. And so will every empire and every kingdom that has ever walked the face of the earth. It will rise and it will go down eventually. Only God reigns and rules over all those empires, and he is the one who establishes kingdoms, and he strips down kingdoms. And he will pull down the mighty from their thrones. And he's not concerned about political agendas or political powers because they are nothing to him. He is sovereign. He's over it all. If he wants Joseph to be at the right hand of Pharaoh, Joseph will be at the right hand of Pharaoh. God doesn't need to delegate or figure that out. He will do it. He is sovereign. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and then it says he has exalted those of humble estate. He has exalted those of humble estate. God exalts those who humble themselves before him. God exalts those who humble themselves before him. 
In Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, he says it this way. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those who humble themselves, those who admit that they are in need, who admit that they have nothing to bring, those are the ones who God will elevate. He, he will exalt. That is both in the past as a truth of who he is and what his justice brings, and also in the future when all things will be brought right before God. He will exalt those who have humbled themselves and admitted that they have no righteousness on their own, and he will crush those who have pride and who say that they do have righteousness on their own. Those people who look to God and they say that God has really nothing significant, there is no God in heaven, that I can be righteous before this God, he will crush those people because that's the very essence of what it means to be proud. That's the very essence of pride. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Those two statements in 52 and 53 are Hebrew parallel statements, which means they both talk about the same truth through different analogies or different metaphors. Verse 52 says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And verse 53 says, He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. The rich and the mighty can be paralleled. Rich people trust in their own ability to provide for themselves, both morally and financially. If you're a rich person, you think you can provide for your own needs. And if that's a moral need, you're not relying on Jesus as your only Savior, as your only righteousness. You're saying that at some level, you can provide some kind of righteousness to stand before God, which is why he sends the rich away empty. You can think about the rich young ruler who Jesus sends away empty. You could think about the rich man and Lazarus in the parable that Jesus tells there, where the rich man is sent to hell, and Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham. The rich he sends away empty. And those who are hungry, he fills them with good things. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs shall be the kingdom of God. They will be satisfied. Those who acknowledge their hunger admit the fact that they need to be satisfied, they need to be filled. Which is why Jesus says that, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. You have to acknowledge your hunger in order to eat. And you need to eat of the meal that will never go, leave you hungry again. Those who are hungry are those who are admitting of the fact that they are sinners in need of a Savior. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. And they will be satisfied. Those who are rich are those who think that they will not need God's righteousness or his sacrifice. And he will send them away empty because they don't need it. So why would he give them any food? And they will find out at the end of time that they really were just as impoverished as everybody else is. And you can look at yourself and ask yourself the question, am I someone who relies on God as my source of righteousness? Do I hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God? And if so... How I worship should inform that because I should approach God every single time by confessing my sin before the Lord and acknowledging the fact that I am in need of the food that he's about to give me. Verse 54 and 55 close here on the basis of what's called the Abrahamic covenant, which is God's faithfulness to his people of old. Verse 54 and 55 go this way. It says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. All of these things that we've been talking about, that he feeds those who are hungry, that he sends the rich away empty, 
All of those things are on the basis of God's mercy. And God's mercy can be found as evidence all throughout covenant history. You can look to any of the covenants. Mary recalls the Abrahamic covenant, which recalls the faithfulness of God to his people Israel. And like I said before, we just came out of Hosea. We know how Israel was doing in terms of being right before God. If you need proof of God's sovereignty, you can look to the fact that the Jewish people are still around today. They survived three major exiles, and they're still around as an ethnic people. They survived Egypt being sold into slavery, oppressed for 400 years, and then they made it out. Not only did they make it out, they became a kingdom unto themselves and conquested a whole bunch of land. And then a bigger empire came, Assyria, and destroyed the northern half of the kingdom. Exile number two. Egypt was number one. And then exile number three, Babylon comes in and takes the rest of the kingdom hostage. And then the people return from all three of these exiles, still intact, ready to go. God is sovereign because he promised Abraham a long time ago that Abraham would have offspring for generations and that he would be established forever. And God, in his sovereignty, preserves his people despite the fact that all the major superpowers were against Israel. They made it out just fine. Babylon's not there anymore. Assyria, not there anymore. The Egyptian empire is not around. The Jewish people are because God is sovereign. Abraham... The covenant to Abraham is the basis and an evidence of the fact that God is merciful. And Mary recalls his faithfulness to Abraham. And we can look back at God's faithfulness through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because Jesus on the cross is the fulfillment of all the covenants of old that have been promised in the past. And they all look forward to Jesus. And when Jesus dies on the cross, we as Christians now who look back on the crucifixion, we can look to that as the satisfaction of the wrath of God as the sin price that we all owe being paid and that we can have peace with God. We have now have an ongoing peace with God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And not only did God do all these things and accomplish all these things and deliver his son up to be crucified, but he wrote a whole book about it, 66 volumes. And then, at the very beginning of this book, in Genesis chapter 3, he calls the fact that at the end of the book, Jesus is going to come and atone for sins. He tells it to Satan, who's the very one who he's going to send Jesus against to defeat. And he tells him that thousands of years before it happens. And God, in his sovereignty, works in such a way in that Satan cannot stop him. Satan stands opposed to God. The demons stand opposed to God. Nations and empires and people stand opposed to God. But God moves undeterred constantly in his sovereignty towards his end. And Paul and all the apostles take great comfort in this because they see themselves as worshiping this holy God who is sovereign and unthwarted. And so whatever suffering comes their way, whatever. God is sovereign. Whatever pain they endure, they count it as a great blessing because they can suffer in the way that Christ suffered. And they can endure with Christ as he endured. And in all these things, they can find great joy in who God is. His faithfulness is the thing that ends up being the thing that makes him feed the hungry. Because God is faithful to his promises of old, which means he will feed the hungry one day. If you'll turn with me, the last thing I want to look at here is in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. We're going to talk about the secret to joy. The secret to having joy so that you can always worship God rightly. Philippians chapter 3 will be in verses 4, or starting in verse 4. 
Paul here is talking about all the things he has to boast in. He says in verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. He's referring to the fact that everyone else is boasting in what they can do. They're boasting in their own riches. They are the people who think that they are rich, who think that they are not hungry. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He stands with all of the credentials that you could need to stand right before God. And he looks at all of these things that he has, and he says, verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having any righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul takes a look at the secret of joy, and he writes in Philippians later that we should rejoice always in the Lord. And the secret to joy is Jesus. And looking at Jesus and saying that whatever things you have, whatever things Paul had, they are nothing compared to Jesus because Jesus is worth more than those things. And whatever things you lose through Jesus, through relationship with him, whatever friendships are lost, whatever job opportunities are surpassed, whatever suffering you endure, you see Jesus as being more than worth it. More than worth it. So you look at all the good things you have, you say Jesus is worth more, and whatever you've lost, you say that Jesus was worth way more than that anyway. It's a great bargain. It's a great deal. And that is the secret to joy in Christ. That's the secret to joy so that we can worship God rightly. That's what Mary identifies at the beginning of this song. She says that she can have joy in Christ so she can worship him rightly, so she can bring glory to him because she recognizes that her Savior is worth everything. She's worth scorn, ridicule. Jesus is worth everything. And I think we all have to take an assessment of our lives as people who live in America and don't deal with much suffering and ask ourselves the question, what are you willing to endure for the sake of Christ? Is he really worth it? And if he is really worth it, don't be surprised if he begins to test his worth to you. If he begins to ask you, will you give up this for me. As the rich man says, he says, I followed all the law. And then Jesus says, well then, just give up your riches. And you can come after me. And he can't part ways with those things. And I think as American Christians, we all might be under the guise of the fact that we would trade everything for Christ until we have to. And so we should ask ourselves honestly, would we give everything for Christ? Is he really worth it? And if you answer yes, don't be surprised if he begins to actually test that. And then you can count it as a great joy for suffering for the sake of knowing Christ because everything you give up is another reminder of the fact of how great is the worth of Christ. Nothing that you lose is anything compared to Jesus. And when Mary concludes her song of praise, it simply says that she returns home. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. And that is the conclusion of this narrative of Scripture. And we don't know why she goes home. I mean, John's going to be born in a few days, really. Very short period of time. But she goes home, and we don't know why. All we have here 
as evidence of the fact that, remember, Luke is writing to Theophilus and trying to give Theophilus a great encouragement of all the things that have happened concerning Jesus. And here he includes Mary's song of praise. And if Theophilus could benefit from Mary's song of praise and the implications of it, I think all of us Christians could benefit from Mary's song of praise. And we could meditate on it, we can rejoice in it, and all the truths that it contains. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word for us today. I thank you for the promise of Abraham and that you've been faithful to that promise from generation to generation to generation. Lord, I thank you that we can be reminded of the fact that we can have joy in you and joy in knowing Christ Jesus because he is worth more than anything that we have in this life. Jesus, you are more than any career that we could have, any friendship that we could have, any relationship that we could have, any opportunities that we give up, we give up for you and we say that these are far more valuable. But yet, although they are more valuable to us and to the world, we look at them and we die to self and we live to Christ and we say that Jesus is worth infinitely more than any of the things that we have to give up to follow him. And that over whatever we have now, we look at it and we say that Jesus is worth infinitely more and we would gladly part ways with it. And we count Christ Jesus as worth everything. And so that in every circumstance, in every situation, in every trial, so long as we have Jesus, we have joy. And so long as we have joy, we can worship you. And so long as we can worship you, Lord, we can continue to fulfill our ultimate purpose, which is to glorify you forever. And Lord, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would give us the strength to endure, the resolve to endure, and the eyes to see what Christ is actually worth so that we can gladly part ways with anything that is less than that. Not with grumbling, not with groaning, not with complaints, but with an infinite amount of joy so that we can count everything as worth it for the sake of being found in Christ. In your name, amen.